this is the last evening that we have together and what comes together must separate. It's a dhamma, isn't it? So this separation, uh, tomorrow as they finish off the retreat, uh, contemplate that sense of, you know, that, that, just that pattern of coming together, separating, to be a witness to that. Um, even though one, I don't, I find that, that that, uh, has been a great deal of, a lot of insights have come just to observing the feelings of separating from the loved or the likable or what, um, situations that have been very pleasant and so forth. I've explained this before, but these are the, these, these kind of, Experiences are also part of the practice. Not to see practice as merely the formal retreat, the kind of spoon feeding that I've been. Because <laughs> retreats are like spoon fed, aren't they? They're you're setting, you're making, uh, you know, you're you're giving opportunity where you, you know you you're on noble silence. You don't have to spend your time kind of chatting each other up and. And uh, you don't have to, it's nice to be with people, isn't it? Just physically share our lives together in this way. It's a, I find it extremely pleasant. I mean, I really like people. I want to get fed up with people is having to feel I have to talk to them all the time or, you know, relate to them endlessly in, in various ways. But actually, sitting in silence and, and uh, doing good things together and working together and sharing lives together is uh, also just a very pleasing experience for our, is our, in our human state. I mean, human beings are like that. We like, we, you know, as much as we, we say, let me out, I want to go off alone to my cave in the Himalayas. We really, none of us really want to do that for very long. We find ourselves gravitating towards, you know, each other <laughs> in centers. You wonder why so many people crowd into cities, and uh, why why we don't? Why isn't there more tendency to towards uh, say living in aromatic existence? But this is that's a rare kind of human being. Most of us uh, find our joy in life in being with with others and serving, helping each other. In the forest tradition of Northeast Thailand, it's uh, my initial intention was was more on the to 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 be a, become a kind of aromatic troclodyte <laughs> which means a caveman a hermetic caveman and uh, <laughs> this idea of, of i found uh, human demand and the kind of feeling the tensions that human beings wasn't anyone's real, it wasn't like people's fault in particular, it was uh, just a, an attitude I had about life that I found a human companionship always a very kind of stressful. It wasn't an, anyone's fault, it was just a, a view, I mean a, feel, a, a kind of attitude of, that I developed in my life. And so, um, uh, 
monasticism, Buddhist monasticism was off, you know, I thought was going to solve the problem, go off and live in a cave. And I quite like living alone. I mean, I don't find that difficult to be alone with myself uh, indefinitely is, is quite quite a uh, experience I don't have any problems with. My problems, my my suffering usually came through uh, having to relate to others, or a sense of inferiority or inability or self-consciousness was, was would always be brought up in in regards to other human beings. When you're alone and you don't have to relate to them, you relate to to your cat or something, those kind of feelings don't rise. <laughs> Poopsie, you could always just, <laughs> you could patronize and kind of uh, enjoy the relationship of, of uh, affection with something, with, a, with a, a sweet little animal. But with other human beings, it's not so easy, isn't it? It's, uh, we, we manage to uh, threaten each other uh, in so many ways. And it's through this, through community, they, in Sangha life, that, that very much living as a monk uh, these years has allowed me to, to kind of resolve most of that, those tendencies. Because we live in a, in a very skillful way with each other, uh, you know, in a very noble way, so that one is, is developing a sense of relatedness and and respect for say the, the nuns and the monks and and uh, and a growing kind of respect as you as you kind of uh, share your lives together in this way then there it, the sense of respect increases and um, it wears away the the sharp edges of self consciousness and and uh, fears and anxieties about others and about oneself. Venerable Amaro once gave me a very good metaphor or simile for this process. He said, he said it's like, Sangha is like these kind of uh, stone polishing machines where you, you get these kind of rough, coarse little stones, you know, they all dull and gray and grotty looking and rough and not at all attractive and you put them in this uh, polishing machine and they and uh, set it going and they kind of all rub up against each other uh, for a while and they come out these kind of lovely shiny smooth <laughs> beautiful polished stones and uh, that's a that's a good simile for Sangalai we we kind of rub up against each other and wear away the the hard edges and the coarseness and the the uh, the ugly exterior and inside each stone is this lovely shiny beautiful thing. In regards to the future of the world and humanity. <laughs> I think that's that's the question we all uh, are concerned about, isn't it? Because I went to a lecture in London uh, 
couple of months ago, uh, where Paul Ehrlich, I think, from Stanford, was giving a talk to the Worldwide Fund for Nature, and uh, he sat there on, drinking his gin on the <laughs> He had a bottle of gin, he had four big glasses of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he gave a very good talk. <laughs> and he was there, he was born in 1932, and he's saying that the population of the world in 1932 was 2.2 billion people. And then he wrote this book called The Population Explosion, which was published in 1968. And that, by 1968, the population of the world was 2. Point, what, 2.4? Uh, 4, 4 point, is it 4.4? And it doubled by 1968. And by 1990, not 91, it's now up to 5 billion, uh, and probably by the turn of the century, 5.4 billion. So, I mean, this is, and he was pointing out that, that, uh, generally human society has not been very concerned about the increase of population because they, they say that we have the know-how and the technology to provide for all these people. And yet it's quite obvious that that even, you know, that you could take care of 10 billion people, possibly. But the truth of the matter is that with 5 billion, they're not doing a very good job of taking care of them. You know, it's a, the problems are, you know, even here. I mean, we, we live such really privileged lives, uh, most of us, in countries where, where so much that we can take for granted of comfort and privilege and luxury, even, but in, uh, like in Bangladesh or in Africa, these third world countries are really desperate. Uh, famine, just malnutrition in India, just uh, people in India just look so, so ghastly as far as, you know, they don't look like they ever get enough vitamins, vitamins to, you know, a proper diet. And uh, Ajahn Sajito, went on this pilgrimage to uh, India, and he was uh, saying, you know, he's living on the, you know, on alms food during the time, he was on this walking pilgrimage to the holy places, and was saying that the diet is, you just, you just don't get enough, you know, protein or, or uh, vitamins to really, you get just very dull. And he said after six months in India, he could see why Indian people just kind of stand around with a kind of vacant stare. And one of the most kind of off-putting things to Western people is the way the Indian men stand there and just kind of look at you, stare at you, and they're kind of totally vacuous eyes. And it drives you, but makes you feel really funny, and you kind of smile and go, <laughs> and then nothing changes. <laughs> See people shaking their fists, and that doesn't seem to bother them either. <laughs> just uh, people, probably just without much energy. And and, he, and Ajahn Sahidjo said he could feel that way. You know, he could just sit there and and just stare off into space. The and the, the so much money and uh, resources of the world's going toward the kind of weaponry and really quite 
nasty things and where the human factor has not been really considered that well just trying to uh, get people to use birth control methods and that is not really I mean that is that is being you know that's almost making a joke out of the problem because it's really a you know it's not a matter of birth control but of of educating people and and kind of encouraging people to, to to give opportunities for them to develop and grow in in physical and spiritual ways because human beings have this great potential and uh, so that one regards individual human when whenever I try to look at all human beings as as the Buddha, as somebody who ha- is that way, has that potential, can be an enlightened being, has a reflective mind, uh, and even though, no matter how uh, detestable they might act, or whatever, it's still better to look at them in that way than to to endlessly dwell on their faults and their and their uh, lack of virtue because it it's much more of use to oneself and one's own heart and also for them because we need to be reminded again of what we really are what our true nature is because we've forgotten haven't we most people have forgotten all about it it becomes so caught up into just our greed hatred and delusion that that the whole kind of meaning and purpose to our humanity is, 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 is almost unrecognized, unacknowledged in modern education. So the awakening of the human being, this is where education can be seen as the opportunity to awaken rather than to just program people into, like computers. That's generally what passes as education these days, isn't it? A kind of programming of the human mind. You, 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 you kind of just have these computer programs that they instill into you, and then you can spew them out accordingly. When you push the buttons, then the program begins. And uh, this, is, this is one level of human experience of just habituation but that is not the that is not really the 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 potential of humanity is being lost in just uh, using that alone as a way of educating children or adults that we really need to to bring back the whole purpose of education which is to awaken the human heart, the human mind, towards profound understanding of truth. That was the original purpose of education. Not to just program them into being engineers and, and uh, scientists and whatever. At this time there's so many opportunities too, like all of us having an opportunity to go on a retreat like this was not possible 25 years ago 
just just the conditions were not there in California, which is a, usually a kind of you know trendsetter for the world. And uh, and 25 years ago, there wasn't there wasn't any opportunities like this. Master Hua, when, when asked about the uh, Dharma ending age, said, I'm not going to let it end. <laughs> I think that, that's very much uh, an attitude that is worth contemplating because, uh, I mean, just don't expect him to do all the work. But, uh, I mean, this is, this is how powerful our minds can be that we, no matter what the predictions are, or how gloomy and and, fe- uh, and futile it might appear, it can always change. The santitiko akaliko dhamma here and now is is the real power. Is the the truth is the, as the real as the real power. The force of the truth of the dhamma is is what we take refuge in, not in just the kind of gloomy predictions of people. Uh, who, uh, you know, can see uh, all kinds of degenerating tendencies. Also, as you practice more, your perceptions change from, from being very self-conscious, limited to, to, uh, to just the way you're, you're kind of culturally conditioned, to a more accurate way of using your perceptive abilities. So that you don't, you don't, your, your way of thinking and that, uh, is, is, is be, is, becomes more accurate rather than just, uh, kind of the, the programming that you, that you've already been through, uh, through being unawakened, through just being, uh, part of the system. And with meditation, you're actually standing outside the system and, and learning how to use your mind how to develop it. And so this is now on the increase, this kind of understanding. When I, when I left Thailand in 77, and Ajahn Chah and I came to England, people would ask him about, in that, in those days, Thailand, Thai Buddhism looked pretty dismal. And, uh, I think Ajahn Chah was a bit kind of weary of it all, because he just felt that it, it was just an old tree that was dying and he didn't have much hope for it. And so when he came to England, he had, you know, quite enthusiastic about possibilities of, of Buddhism developing, taking root in England. But then over the last 10 years, uh, something also changed in Thailand. That now the, that, uh, uh, the amount of People interested in practicing meditation is is significant. Where before they, when they, fifteen years ago, uh, most lay people, Thai lay people, had the idea they couldn't practice meditation. That's what monks do, and they were very much uh, kind of interested in Western things, Western values, and and uh, they. Uh, and, and Buddhism, much of it had just been degenerated into kind of traditions and empty traditions and, and even superstitions. 
Where now you find in, in Bangkok, every time I go to Bangkok, uh, you know, to, I can really burn out from just the amount of invitations from different groups to give talks or meditation retreats. And this is, and this is from the middle class. As, as Thailand develops a middle class, that, that group very much has beginning, is beginning to return to their roots as a culture. I think they've seen you know, most of them have been educated in America or Europe, <laughs> Australia. And they, they've, uh, uh, you know, with all the kind of respect and enthusiasm for Western uh, values. When they go back, I think they're a bit, you know, realize the the, the emptiness of Western materialism, and uh, some of them become interested again in Buddhism. Only this time through the meditation rather than just the Thai tradition. So this is this is a very good sign that I see in Thailand a, 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 a growing interest among Buddhist people themselves to practice meditation. It's also happening in Sri Lanka and in Burma. We get many, we get increasing amount of requests and people coming from the Eastern European countries. So there's, there's Buddhist societies in Prague and in Warsaw and, and uh, Budapest and uh, even in Romania, Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, none from Albania yet. Uh, Yugoslavia, we've had quite a few, and and uh, none from the Soviet Union itself. But there is a there is more contact now possible, and so Buddhism seems to seems to have this uh, that kind of uh, go through a, a kind of, a, a kind of echelon of world society, an educated, very self-aware type of human being. The more kind of, kind of aware of yourself and, and, uh, you, you no longer can kind of just, uh, a lot of people have been disillusioned, like in the communist system, in that people just, that, that whole way of thinking now is, is just no longer respected. Like when you, when you look at what Soviet communism really, how it, how it really started was through, human idealism that wasn't related to any spiritual goal. There was no transcendent possibility in Marxian communism. It rejected that totally. So it was based on just human values and human ideals. And of course it it didn't have any sustaining power. It had it because it was inspiring in itself uh, it, it tended to inspire people and attract. But as an actual application to human problems and problems of a society, it ended up tyrannizing the people rather than liberating them. And this is what you, you can see, that people no longer trust ideas. Just idealism is uh, the ability of human beings to, to create marvelous ideas. is now, you know, no longer regarded with such interest or respect that we, we even become cynical or even, you know, weary of 
all the, the kind of abilities of a human being to think up good ideas. Because idealists inevitably, if they're not, if they have not any, if they don't have any wisdom and don't understand Dhamma, then their ideals become kind of, they have to use tyrannical methods, force them down your throat. So we can, you know, that's, my ideas might be good, but by, by forcing them down your throat, <laughs> the means is, is terrible, isn't it? It's, it's a, it's a patronizing, insensitive means that I'm using. And, uh, and of course the result is oppression. One feels oppressed by a system that based on very high-minded ideas. And this is what happens to so many, to people just caught in, say, in, in, uh, in just moral ideals or ethical ideals or political ideals. It, when it's just coming from ideas alone, uh, and forced on us, then one only feels oppressed by it. It, it, it weighs us down. It's, it's put onto us. And even though it, it might be very good in itself, it, the means is not right. So we have to consider the right means uh, in order to like to teach Dhamma and to to uh, help people to 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 awaken people rather than to just try to force our ideas into their minds and oppress them with fear and of being punished. So it's a time where there is enough self-awareness possible and and where idealism is no longer so highly respected that there's more aware uh, you know people are more awakened to the 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 need to understand nature to harmonize with nature such kind of interests in shamanism and Taoism and and kind of natural religions that have been rejected has been regarded almost as like shamanism was was never uh, uh, considered any kind of decent alternative. It was just primitive superstition to most uh, most people's minds, and uh, you, one just felt it was paganism, or you know, one rejected it totally. Uh, when you read, uh, if you get an old copy of Roger's Thesaurus and look up. Buddhism, it's, it's listed under uh, paganism. It's synonymous to paganism and and satanic cults. <laughs> and that's not so long ago, even Buddhism was was lumped in that category of you know heresies and satanic cults and paganism. It's a the way the old Christian world isn't had a way of just lumping everything and making it all into one bad thing, dismissing it totally uh, by calling it evil, and that's another that that's another very evil thing to do, isn't it? To to just uh, label things as evil, to to try to to make evil into kind of uh, the same things are evil in themselves rather than 
evil as a, as the product of ignorance and not understanding things, we tend to, to regard people or cults or things as evil. And that's a, that's a kind of, that's superstition really, isn't it? When you just, like the idea of a, uh, of a somebody, a person being evil, or say a, a witch, or a, or a shaman, or a, these kind of, were, were regarded as evil forces that you could just exterminate and torture, uh, because it, the, the logic was that you should wipe out evil. But evil is actually something that we, that we create in our own minds out of ignorance, uh, out of not understanding Dhamma, then, then we, we can easily, uh, be deluded. We can do evil things thinking that we're doing something good. Like witch burning, isn't it? And I'm sure that they thought they were actually doing something good by burning witches. And, uh, it wasn't because they, they loved to torture people, was it? And there might have been a few, um, sadistic monsters, but say, why did the have kind of been put off by Christianity because of a lot of the things that they do are so unkind or so insensitive or so, uh, narrow-minded that we can put down the whole, or the, if you read these books, the kind of polemics against Christianity, uh, then you, you come out with the idea that it was, it's a total waste, that the whole religion is somehow bad. But that's, that's, it's, the, it's, it's not that the religion is bad, it's the use of it is, is bad. Using it for the, in the wrong way. Like when we use, like a Buddha Rupa, uh, you could, you could use this Buddha Rupa for, you know, hitting somebody over the head. You could, you know, knock somebody out with it, kill them with this Buddha Rupa. And then you say, well, Buddha Rupas are evil because they, they're weapons that kill people. Or <laughs> is it just that the intention of the person was, was the real evil, not the, not the thing itself? So I recommend the attitude of not letting it be the Dharma ending age. And, uh, to not worry about it. Not to, not to be caught up in the, in the gloom doom predictions because this is a miraculous universe. And as, uh, Venerable Heng Chi was saying, even though there's no such thing as a miracle, yet our ability to perceive and know is, is still quite limited as individual humans. But there are all kinds of causes, cooperating causes for goodness in the, in this uh, infinite universe that we can't really con- see or know in any clear way. We can only kind of open our hearts to it, intuit, uh, rely on our more in- intuitive faculties, trust in that more and more, uh, and then, uh, then try to, to lead humanity toward a Towards realizing its full potential. See that the, 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 each human being as potentially a blessing to the world.
seeing oneself, seeing yourself, not from the self-conscious uh, vanity or or self-disparagement, uh, but recognize that, that through this form, this, these human forms, that, that there is incomparable blessings possible. That hu- human beings, it's like saying the Dalai Lama, he represents that a human being, living, breathing human being like ourselves, who whose life is blessing us rather than polluting the environment. I see my teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Chah, his life was a great blessing, great blessing to the world, his, the way he lived it and, and his uh, teaching and his compassion. We all feel, you know, all of us here, the, the bhikkhus and the, the two nuns, we all feel this uh, gratitude that he blessed us, though that he was uh, just a, a human being who who instead of being pollutant and a nuisance and a pest, actually was a blessing to the world. There are a lot of these un, unrecognized ones. There's not, there's Mother Teresa, some people like that, famous ones, but there are so many that are just without, nobody knows about. You know, it's not like that everybody's going to become uh, famous and, and even acknowledged. It doesn't matter. That's, we need to to uh, acknowledge this and to respect it because it does inspire us because so many of the role models for modern use are pretty horrible like rock stars and all that you look at these kind of maniacal looking creeps on the rock posters you think it's really awful isn't it bringing humanity to that level. <laughs> London during that, that kind of punk movement was very, really hilarious to walk along King's Road in London and observe this, the way people were, were uh, you know, fixing, put it, you know, putting, dressing themselves up in the most horrendous uh, clothes and, you know, doing all kinds of weird things with their hair and putting pins to their nose and, and trying to shock people endlessly. Like, just do the most shocking, the most outrageous, the most kind of evil, demonic things. And uh, it was, this is uh, a, a kind of, you know, youthful protest against um, the older generation, but it does show that you know that that, that the society, uh, it, you know, if one tends to dress like a demon, you te- you can easily become that way. You become what you what you grasp. You know, there was this uh, horrible case uh, what in the seventies, uh, somewhere in Connecticut, I think, where these teenagers were playing with with black magic, black rites, and and they all went uh, demonic, and and they they murdered one of their own people, a kind of ritual murder, and then ended up committing suicide. And they were they were kind of middle class white teenagers, you know, from fairly comfortable backgrounds, 
uh, and and this was because you know just the power of of that demonic energy can easily uh, overwhelm the human mind, especially in they it's not even you know it's not wise to even play around with it or experiment with it. There's a, a case in England of uh, the son of one of our supporters who who has gone stark mad, gone really stark raving mad with he's uh, to his experiments with satanic rituals. And it's really hard to, to change. It's just, it's, uh, once, once you let those forces into your mind, it, it's very hard to, to stop it. Or to free the heart from it. So, this is why, say, the, the moral precepts are so helpful. As long as you remain, they, tomorrow, before you leave, give you the five precepts. The, the, from the eight which you took for the retreat, then tomorrow morning give you the five precepts. That that is the the kind of standard of moral commitment we need to make uh, of physical and and verbal restraint, not going outside those limitations. And that is the be- that is the the safety area that that prevents evil from entering our our lives. It's a it's a protection. Now it's not that evil has a kind of existence of its own, but but we live in a in a vibratory universe. So it's it, there's a you know all levels of all infinite possibilities, and what you tend to do, uh, you become that way. So if you if, if you tend to go toward toward uh, say immoral actions and and uh, Lying and killing and uh, promiscuity and and uh, uh, stealing and and dishonesty of any sort and drink and drugs, then these addictive substances. Then one becomes that way. One easily becomes uh, infected by that that kind of uh, behavior. So that the five precepts. Uh, is is to to restrain ourselves so that we we are not allowing uh, the possibility of lower kind of vibrations or energies to to take over our minds. It's like you can tune in to any realm. The human being in Buddhist cosmology, you have you you can uh, you have from the the Brahma realms, the radiant realms of Brahma, the Deva realms, uh, the kind of ethereal, uh, uh, beautiful realms of the Devas, different levels of Deva realms, to the human realm, and then the, below the human realm is the, is the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, and the hellish realm. Well, sometimes we, we can look at that as some kind of cos, cos, cosmological plan and see it almost externally and, and, and people question it. You know, people don't believe in those things anymore. So you can't, if you're going to try to convince people that there's a Deva realm, there's some external thing, it's not like the, many people are just going to reject that. Uh, so, oh, in Thailand, one of the, 
the famous teachers there has used it more as a way of teaching about the the range of your own mental states from the radiant Brahma possibilities, the devas, the human, animal, hungry ghost, and hell. That these are not we're not we're not trying to prove their existence as external facts, but but actually you can we can relate to these realms personally. At least I can. I've seen the hungry ghost in myself. Got a, a kind of insatiable uh, greed. Uh, the hungry ghost is is usually pictured as this kind of hideous little creature with a a belly as big as Mount Everest and a mouth as, as small as the eye of a needle and this long skinny neck. So the hungry ghost is always trying to fill up this enormous belly uh, and but he can only get so much through this little mouth and down the, in a kind of great and, and uh, abrasive kind of uh, pain on this scraggly neck and he says always hungry and always looking for something. So, I've seen that in myself. And you kind of just endlessly kind of want more and more. Kind of greed for more excitement, more pleasure. Or, say, malicious states, uh, vengeful states, or hell realms, and want to get even, destroy and harm, and malicious behavior, malicious speech. And if you really look at that mental state, it's a it is a, is a living hell. Then the, then the animal realm, kind of dull and instinctual, just eat and sleep and, and, uh, procreate. It's a, like, like Poopsie. <laughs> sometimes you just, seeing that, just get by with eating, sleeping and procreating. Uh, then there's then there's the the deva realm. The, you've seen that in in here in in the California and Britain people are trying to just live in kind of refine aesthetic refinements and sensual kind of pleasures of refined qualities and music and art and and uh, high mindedness and so forth up to the ability as you meditate to to radiate. To be a radiant being, the Brahma experiences of Brahma. So these we can we can apply to the range of of mental experience of an individual human being. But we can get caught in any of these realms if we're like you can see people that are addicted to to kind of drugs. They're kind of hungry ghosts, aren't they? They just like these pretas roaming around looking for the next hit and will do anything to get it, you know, kill or, or, or brutalize anyone just to get money to buy the next hit. There's a, a kind of hungry ghost mentality. And we can see that, the, that if, if we keep the five precepts, then that makes that realm uh, very, you know, impossible. That just the this this five precept limitation, this restraint, is for the human realm. And in Thailand, they don't regard you as a as a fully as a full human being unless you keep the five precepts, like the, 
the monks will say you're not really fully human even though you think you are till you till you restrain your actions and speech under the five precepts so that's that these precepts you need to 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 you know it's not not to be forced on you but to for you to make that decision so that it's coming from your from your own taking on responsibility for your life and this is where we we need to develop that awakened mind of a human individual that that makes a strong determination not to do evil actions with one's body or speech and to do good with, with as our way of living with each other to do the good and refrain from doing the bad that has to be really make that a strong determination because not just a kind of half-hearted one because it is very important uh, and then there is hope for humanity because this is this is this is where humanity gifts are is in this realm where we where we need to get our where we attain our wisdom where we use wisdom where we perfect our humanity through the, this kind of moral restraint because uh, the the animal kingdom has no ability to to decide not to kill it's, it is an instinctual realm a kind of uh, it's non-reflective intelligence animal animal intelligence is a non-reflective kind of intelligence it's the intelligence of survival and an adaptation uh, out of necessity but it's not uh, and you can see wild animals are more usually more intelligent than domesticated ones because uh, you have to use your wits to survive in the jungle when you have a you know cattle and sheep become really stupid because they they just taken care of by man so they get very dull and you look at the foxes and the squirrels and things like this so you see the kind of sharpness of mind just the the ability to survive in the jungle you have to use your wits you have to be clever to survive as a as a as an animal in the jungle the uh, some people prefer to aim at deva kind of you know aesthetics and beauty as a, as a, as their goal in life which is certainly uh you know uh you know it's certainly uh, better than than going downward <laughs> but it's still uh, it's still uh, a realm that that ends it's still a unsatisfactory realm and even the the brahma radiances and in the suttas the the buddha Buddhism, you see, is, has this uh, takes all the the Hindu gods and they they all worship the Buddha. So, uh, you know, stories of of Brahma, Mahabrahma, the great Brahma god, you know, really uh, being unable to answer uh, questions, Dharma questions, and advising the pilgrims to go and visit the Buddha. And the god Indra, which is the the god of the uh, heavens, in the the 
god of all that, like he, people feel like probably counterpart to Zeus in the in the Greek pantheon, Indra with the thunderbolt and and god of the heavens is is also a, uh, an adorer and worshipper of the Buddha. Though in in Buddhist uh, Buddhist uh, iconography, you can see these 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 representatives like the, the Indra is, is likes to listen to the Dhamma, and, and the devas rejoice when when somebody is enlightened. Devas don't ever get enlightened, it seems, but they rejoice at our enlightenment. And in the Namajaka Sutta, the end of it is that uh, you know it goes through this after the Buddha. Uh, taught the Four Noble Truths to the five disciples, only one of those disciples really understood it. Kondanyo, the name was Kondanyo. So, uh, then the, the, uh, uh, when, when the Buddha set the, the Dharma wheel rolling with his teaching of the Four Noble Truths, then the devas started rejoicing. And then we have this chant where when you're chanting the Dhammajaka Sutta, all these devas uh, go from one realm to the next and they go up and up and up and the, the, the lower realms of devas start telling the, you know, rejoicing in, in the, the, the Buddha's uh, enlightenment and then, and then it goes up and up and up to the high, to the Brahma realms. And these devas are just, you know, uh, having a, you know, an ecstasy over this. And so there's kind of fantastic symbolism of the, these kind of radiant creatures, beautiful beings rejoicing in the Buddha's enlightenment and the setting of the Dharma wheel. And then at the Dharma wheel rolling. And, but then at the very ending of the, of the sutta, the Buddha says, uh, after all that kind of, uh, magnificence, the Buddha announces, he says, it's Anya, it's Kandanyo that understands. And what does Kandanyo understand? All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. So that, in the, the kind of brilliant way of stating, you know, that, that all this other stuff might be more kind of, uh, you know, attractive and impressive, but it's in that profound understanding of that, of that truth that, uh, the, that the Buddha uh, is, you know, is sees as the most useful, the most praiseworthy. It's through, through that, and it's simple, isn't it? It's not, it's not fantastic. It's not like radiant Brahma or, or, you know, the Bari Nimitta Devas with all their, uh, you know, gold and jeweled, uh, radiant clothes and all beautiful creatures and golden chariots and, all these fan- fantasies that we create, but it's in the the simple realization and profound real simple but profound realization of this all that is subject to rising is subject to ceasing. And so this this is don't think because you under you 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 know the meaning of those words that you really have a profound understanding. It takes a long time to real, of determine to determine reflection, to really see that, to really know that, and to keep seeing it in everything. Like this retreat, I'm trying to 
convey certain, like my own, like my own stories about my practice. Don't mean to be testimonials of, you know, uh, I've seen the light. They're merely attempts to try to convey how to, you know, from one human being's experience, how to maybe work with particular human problems or hang-ups. So, you know, it's to be able to, to see the subtleties of conceit and as not to condemn them, but to be able to really observe them as, as what arises ceases and, and to let them cease. So that the kind of, these, these, these little rough edges of our characters are worn, worn away more and more, like attrition, isn't it? It's the, these, these uh, jangling things in us eventually wear out. And just to say, in say, 25 years of, of practice, seeing how things, you know, just uh, the subtleties of little, little kind of seemingly insignificant things that I didn't even, wasn't aware of 25 years ago, you, you become more aware of, of just little forms of kind of silliness or, or kind of clinging to little things and, and it's kind of stubbornness in a way or uh, kind of conceit, uh, stubborn conceit or, or just little blind spots become, one become more apparent to us in conscious experience and we let them go. So that, that, Teaching of all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing is, is, is the, is a kind of easy, compact reflection, but it applies to everything. And through that, then you, that which, you, you know, you're, you're not, you're not taking a, you're not adopting that as a, as a doctrine, but as a reflection. the heart opens up and then there's the amata dhamma, the deathless eternal truth, which is to be re- realized by oneself in one's, in one's own mind and heart, not to, not to be proclaimed and given to us, but can only be bhajitang vetidapo vinuhi realized individually by the wise. So I offer this for your reflection.